So Casablanca is one of the most famous movies in cinematic history, uh, leaving us with probably more than its fair share of artifacts ingrained in our cultural memory. Even 80 years later, right, Humphrey Bogart alone left us with a stack of lines that most of us have heard in some capacity. Of all the watering holes in all the world, you had to wander into mine. Here's looking at you, kid, and perhaps most famously, this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. Interesting trivia about Casablanca is how they determined the ending, how, how it would all turn out. Now, I'm about to ruin this for you, but you have had 80 years to see it, so uh, I don't feel too bad about this. The big question at the end of this movie is whether Ingrid Bergman would escape with from Casablanca with Humphrey Bogart or with Victor Laszlo. I don't even remember Bogart's name in the movie, but I think that's part of the point of having him in it. Uh, Rick, that's it. To, to decide the answer to that question, though, the writers thought about a different issue. Whichever character wouldn't leave with Ingrid Bergman would be left in the situ at this airport to face the Nazi villain. And so the question the writers asked is, would audience, who would audiences rather see shoot the bad guy? Right? And clearly the answer was Humphrey Bogart. He's the hero, right? And so with that ending in place, writers could then determine all of the other events surrounding it that would lead up to it. And so that's an instance where the end of the story determines everything leading up to it. And the point is that we see something very similar at work in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 34. The, the Corinthians had come to doubt the resurrection of the body. Throughout this letter, we've seen how they had numerous problems concerning how we use our bodies, particularly in regard to moral issues. And so in some ways, this issue doesn't surprise us that they're struggling on this front. And still, this was a fundamental, genuinely gospel issue that needed correction. And in Psalm 110.1, God the Father, which we've sung, God the Father declared from eternity to God the Son, the Lord said, the Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Son must reign over all of his enemies. That is the ending that has been determined. And yet death is an enemy. And so God decree, God's decree of the Son's victory demands a resurrection from the dead for Christ, but also for those in Christ. The appointed end, the determined end of the Son's victorious kingdom has been fit, fit and set in place, shaping everything that must lead up to it. And so our main point tonight is that our resurrection from the dead is guaranteed by Christ. Our resurrection from the dead is guaranteed by Christ. Now we're going to think about this in three points. A coming kingdom, a certain hope, and a comforting connection. 
But to throw a curveball at you tonight, there's something I want to pause and take up first. Because the, since I started this book, gosh, two years ago or more at this point, I've been dreading one verse the whole time, and that's verse 29. Uh, otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, the thing here is, um, rather than, there's two considerations I have in mind. One is, I could try to fit this in naturally within the scope of a sermon. I didn't think that would really work. Two, I, I also know that if I have like a burning question, it's hard for me to listen to the rest of the sermon until I have that answer. Uh, so what I want to do is before we get to our three points, I want to do a little bit of an excursus and take on this verse, the baptisms on behalf of the dead. And so this is one of the, uh, admittedly, amongst everybody who, who considers this passage, one of the hardest verses in the whole of the New Testament. And this is hard, this verse is hard, because we're not sure exactly what this practice was, nor why they were doing it. And so our our translations here, being baptized on behalf of the dead, suggests that one person who is still alive receives baptism in place of someone who is dead. I think that's what it suggests. Now we tend to, uh, upon that reading and and following that suggestion, we tend to assume that this dead person was an adult who had not yet professed faith, and yet for some reason a believer is receiving baptism in their stead. I think that's what we tend to assume that this is about. Now, loads of explanations have been suggested for this, trying to explain why anybody could, anybody in a Christian church could think uh, that a living person could vicariously receive baptism for a dead person. And still, at the end of the day, as all the commentators essentially admit, none of them really make sense of the idea, especially in an orthodox sense, and especially since Scripture nowhere else supports that sort of practice. Now, on the other hand, it's sort of confusing. In a, in a book full of corrections, why Paul does not reject or correct this practice here if it's incorrect? Some, some explain this as, as he was simply appealing to a practice that they were using in Corinth, that requires the the belief in the resurrection of the body to to justify why they were doing it. Uh, And so he's he's appealing to something that shows they believe in the resurrection, but ultimately he would reject this practice next time he visits them. That could well be what's happening. That is my second choice. So, is there then any way of under any way of understanding this passage that could make this practice clearer and acceptable. Now, I'm not going to, this is not going to become unorthodox, I promise you that. <laughs> this will be very traditional at the end of things, so just bear with me. We, we have to understand that the word translated here as on behalf of, in, in the phrase baptisms 
on behalf of the dead is a pretty flexible preposition. Okay, it can, it can be translated as simply for, which would suggest the kind of vicarious meaning that I think a, a lot of um, people assume this is, this is after, or it could be translated over. Uh, the Greek word is huper, which is where we get our word super, which actually just does mean above. And so it could be translated uh, ab- over, and in that case, people take it to mean that uh, the church was administering baptisms on the graves of Christians so that they were being baptized over the dead, above the dead. Or, or as I think here, uh, I think most helpful here, it could be translated as for the sake of or simply because of, marking a reason for doing something. And all, all of this, all of this is is sort of readily available in most of the commentaries you would pick up. So I've not said anything uh, at all yet. Everybody kind of admits there's this flexibility and this could mean a, a lot of different things. And so what I want to ask us then is in light of all this, is there any situation, any situation wherein a dead person could supply the reason for baptizing someone else? Yes. An orphan of Christian parents. Something actually fairly easily expected in the first century. An orphan of Christian parents would still have a right to baptism. A child of believers, even if parents have died, is still holy to the Lord, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7.14, and still belongs to the covenant community. Right, As Paul had already told us earlier in this book, that the child of even one believing parent is in some sense, doesn't mean they're saved automatically, but they are in some sense holy to quote the apostle. So perhaps the child in question here had even one parent left, but the believing parent had died. And that parent is still, that dead parent is still united to Christ. And so ties their child to the church. And since we hope, since we hope for the resurrection, those parents' faith provides a reason to baptize their child in this case, because of, because of the dead. Even though dead, those believers are still God's people, still members of the invisible, triumphant church, because we look forward to the resurrection of the body. Now, I, I realize I'm floating something new, and, and I can't insist that you take the, in which case, if you don't like that, I would say go with the, the second choice that Paul would just ultimately criticize them for doing this and it wasn't an orthodox practice. Um, there's no consensus about what this verse entails. Now, the thing is, the Bible needs to drive our theology. And still, sometimes the right theology can help us make sense of 
of biblical material that otherwise makes little sense, right? There, there's a relationship between paradigms and data, right? Data is supposed to be collected, analyzed, and give, give rise to a paradigm, but then at the same time, the paradigm that makes the most sense of all the data uh, tends to be, well, is, is the right one because the right paradigm can make sense of all the data. Uh, so, and I think that's one of the things we have to consider here. If we understand the covenantal nature of church, uh, the church community, as God has always dealt with believers and their children, we have a, a plausible explanation of this practice and why, why Paul doesn't rebuke it. And I want to pause here and ask us, okay, this might be interesting, but does it matter? And I want to say yes. Yes, it does, because it reminds us, Christians, that God loves your children. It reminds us that God has promised to be God to us and to our children after us. And so perhaps we can pause and encourage parents, uh, parents of children who for various reasons have yet to profess faith or look like they are not walking according to their faith. Right? There is encouragement here. Because if this is true, what I've said, well, Paul tells us that even if, even if you're dead, God has a place for your children and may not be done with them. However long that you've been praying for your children, if they've not yet professed faith, if they've wandered from the faith, there is still time. And God has still made his promise to be God to us and our children after us. Perhaps we may not even see the day on earth when God honors his promise and does his work of regenerating our kids. Perhaps it's this sort of case where we go to be with the Lord And yet never, never do we give up hope that God can work in the hearts of our children. Now, this passage's main theme, however, is the surety of the resurrection. And and maybe at long last, depending on your perspective of where we've gone so far, we'll turn to our first main point, a coming kingdom. Now, I'm guessing that the entire genre of of fantasy literature and and movies things like lord of the rings and that kind of thing the almost the entirety of it rests on the premise of the need or a need for or a promise of a king returning to rule uh, the promised kingdom it's pretty much the theme woven throughout the whole genre the land is shrouded in darkness right under the under the rule of evil forces and yet the prospect of a blessed reign under a good king who overthrows the pre- uh, present wicked regime, preserves the hope for, a, for the oppressed citizens longing for renewal and for freedom. There's a reason, though, why that narrative appeals to us in such an enduring way. Right, as Paul tells us in Galatians 1.4, that Christ gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. The God of this world reigns over the age, doesn't he? Right? All of this shows us how indeed we live in a kingdom needing the Redeemer King to free us. 
And that evil power that reigns over us, well, is death itself, isn't it? Verse 20 to 24. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, those who've died. Right? Paul isn't willing to, to say that this is the end of things because indeed spiritually they are alive. They've fallen asleep and they will rise from that sleep even though their bodies are dead. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, and to draw it to our illustration, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Our first representative over the whole race, Adam, sinned and so brought death upon all who were under his care, which is everyone. But just as Adam brought death in this way upon all of his people, Christ came representing the elect, so earning life for them, guaranteeing the resurrection. The end of all things is joined to installing God's full and final kingdom on earth. And yet, as, as we know that, we know that, like, like those hope-generating prophecies of the expected king from fantasy stories, we have a sure expectation of our king returning. The end has been fixed, right? And everything leading up to it is determined by how it ends. And so we have a coming kingdom. And that brings us to our next point, a certain hope. A certain hope. Because I think we need to ask, in light of that first point, then what gives us confidence? What gives us certainty of this king's coming? Why should we trust this? Well, the fact that this king reigns until he comes, gives us that confidence. That's what our text says. The full installation of this kingdom depends upon, the full coming of this kingdom depends upon the king's prior victory. Verses 25 to 28. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Because God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Now, let's, let's think for a minute about Medical treatments. Let's think about, um, let's think about dialysis. And in dialysis, a machine, you get hooked up to this machine, 
and it, it cleanses your blood of impurities, cycling, cycling it back into your body without toxins. You're hooked up to this purifier until the process is done, at which point then the cleansing is complete. The exact point of the treatment, however, is, is that this machine's power needs to circulate through you until the last of the toxins is removed from your blood. And Christ has to reign, must reign, until all of his enemies are purified from his kingdom. We have to be hooked up to the kingdom of Christ until the toxins are pulled from us. And so, Christ reigns until... He conquers all his enemies, the last of which is death. Until death is defeated, Christ must reign and battle on so that he can hand the kingdom over to the Father at the last day. Sometimes the world's troubles make us feel, I think, as if Christ's kingdom is struggling. We can get that impression when things weigh heavily on us. Do you ever wonder if, if Christ is ruling, why, why does so much turmoil happen in the world at large, and especially in the lives of Christians? I've had conversations before where, where someone told me that Christ's kingdom has to be entirely future. He's not king at all right now because nothing around us looks like heaven. Well, while truly the world around us is not heaven, that much we all admit, saying that Christ is not reigning because not every enemy is defeated yet is like saying that someone isn't presently having a dialysis treatment because not all of the toxins are yet removed. The whole process of the treatment is that removal. And so too, the process of Christ's reign is the removal of his enemies. Sin, devil, and the last enemy he will defeat is death. As long as then as, as we have not yet seen death overturned, which happens at the second coming, we know with certainty that Christ is on the throne. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ. Christian, in your trials, take heart. Because we have a certain hope that Christ is reigning And he is reigning to bring everything, all things, in subjection to his kingdom. And our trials are are merely symptoms, side effects, manifestations of the kingdom of Christ purifying all of his enemies from this age. It brings us to our final point, a comforting connection 
a comforting connection. So our our passage is about Christ's kingdom. Hopefully that's come through pretty clearly, which will be fully installed at the resurrection. And that means if this kingdom is, is tied, consummated, at the resurrection, Christ's reign, Christ's reign is over a life-giving kingdom. Let's see where we got the title for the sermon. The, the end is determined. The end is set in place that Christ will have all things in subjection to him and finally defeat death. So everything happening now, everything happening now is like the end of Casablanca, right? Everything leading up these days are driving toward the big finish that we know will happen. Like the crowd-pleasing end of of Humphrey Bogart killing the Nazi, well, so too God's people look forward to the end when all things are set right in the new creation. But the events still have to unfold to bring about, leading up to that big finish. And so let's think more then about the nature of Christ's kingship. As, as God's son, as, as the divine, eternal, second person of the Trinity, well, the son has always had a natural right to rule over creation. Right? Colossians 1, 16 says, For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. That's pretty much everything, right? There's, there's nothing that falls outside of those categories. All of those things were created, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, the same things named in our passage. All things were created through him and for him. God the Son is, by nature, as the divine Son, King of creation. He humbled himself by coming in our nature, though. Why? Why, if he's already, by nature, king of the world, would he come in our nature and humble himself? Well, 1 Corinthians 15, 20, and 21 explains. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. A a matter-of-fact refutation of their doubt of the resurrection, right? In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And here we go. Catch the first fruits... The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Christ humbled himself even unto death, right? Precisely for our sake. To bring life to the people whom Adam made dead. As, uh, so because, right, a man, namely Adam, brought death into the world. When he sinned, sin was credited to us. Adam brought death to us as our first representative. As as Olympians, win or lose, not just for themselves, right, but for their people. So Adam failed on behalf of his people. 
which is everyone. And so because death came upon the human race in that way through a man, life has to come through a man too. Life had to be obtained, and Christ has done that. This, this representative connection, right, that, that so the representative, so goes his people, this representative connection between Christ and his people is what makes his kingdom a life-giving kingdom. He did not rise from death just for himself, but for us. Which is exactly why Paul called him the first fruit of those who have fallen asleep. What's a first fruit? Right? What, why, why this word? Okay, it's like a locomotive. Think about it this way. Like a locomotive arriving at the station entails that, the, that its cars are arriving with it. That's the nature of the thing. The locomotive pulls everything connected to to the destination. So like a locomotive arriving at the station entails its cars also arrive, the first fruit, the first fruit is the down payment of the harvest, guaranteeing that the full crop will come soon. And Christ is the locomotive of resurrection. His arrival into incorruptible life secures it for everyone who is attached to him. This certainty of life coming from Christ is why Paul explained in verses 30 to 34 that we can face every trial that this world throws at us. Nothing is pointless. And virtue, Christian virtue is meaningful because life stands before us. Life in our bodies. We will live forever in our bodies after all. And so our life here in the way we live in regard to our bodies, well, it matters. Because God cares about us holistically. Right? Because Christ is risen as the locomotive of resurrection, as the first fruit of that harvest, we will rise as the crop following the first fruit. It's guaranteed. It is determined. And that's what it is. Christ hands over the kingdom. And in this sense, right, as, as Paul describes Christ handing over the kingdom here, he's not talking about as the divine son. Christ is the natural king over the world as the second person of the Trinity. We've seen that in Colossians. But since Philippians 2, 9-11 to tells us that Christ is highly exalted above every name, right, God the Son will remain exalted as the Savior forever, but there will come a day when he no longer fights his enemies. And so, as the, as the mediator who fights battles, he will hand over the kingdom. As Psalm 8 foretold, right, it's cited in this passage, we sung the psalm together, all things will be subjected to Christ. And at that day, when even death has been subjected to him, he will hand his completed kingdom of life over to the Father. Acknowledging, bringing about the completion of, and acknowledging the completion of the entirety of his saving mission. 
His saving work is not only accomplished, but administered in full. And so, we find our comfort in connection to Christ. Everyone who has trusted in the Lord Jesus knows the end of this story. The story of history. And victory stands before us. Victory that is in the hands of our reigning Savior. Christians, our struggles in these days, they mean that Christ is reigning. Because He reigns until He has put down all of His enemies. And if Christ is reigning, well then we considered already in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is reigning, that it means that we are no longer in our sins. His kingdom is a kingdom of grace. Inviting all to receive mercy from the Savior's hand. And so Christians, as we, as we go into the week before us, let's hold our heads high. Right? Victory has been won. The Savior is reigning. Whatever struggles we face are simply toxins being pulled away as the kingdom of heaven cycles through this world, bringing salvation and hope to everyone who belongs to the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we admit uh, that indeed there are times we, we struggle to see the clarity, the certainty of this hope, that life stands before us. The things of this world weigh heavy upon us and we lose sight of the end of all things. We we do pray, O Lord, that these reflections here on your word would give us confidence as we stride into the week before us. That Christ has won the day. That Christ is our reigning King, and Christ will give us life. His kingdom is one of life, a life-giving kingdom. And so we have nothing to fear. We have all but life before us. And as we have thought in a very particular way about our families, we do want to ask in a very pointed way that you would apply these truths, even, even here and now, that we would see our children have spiritual life, that we would see them profess faith, 